Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We are unknowingly conditioning people to believe in scarcity rather than abundance. And in doing so, we, that contributes to students living lives of poverty uh, for generations. Welcome to Education on the Rocks. I'm your host, John Bullock. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, George Hegarty. And today we are kicking off season four, where we're going to answer the question, dude, are your tots soggy? George, how are you doing today? Sweet. I like that. I like that title for today. I'm, I'm interested to see where we go with it. I think it's a pretty good teaser for everybody that's tuning in to start season four. Yeah, I know. And I'm, I'm happy we're both alive to do a season four. So, hey, it's pretty good. I know. Lots to celebrate. We were talking before the show started. Uh, we've watched a bit of soccer in the past uh, 12 hours, and that's all turned out well. So we might as well get the pod going, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we better start season four on a good note before, uh, if soccer goes bad, who knows where our pod will end up. <laughs> that's right. The, it's interesting how... Uh, how the Timbers, and in my case, City, and in your case, Liverpool, adjust our psyche over the, the fall and winter. Yeah, exactly. That and, uh, you know, Peacock's uh, way of kind of uh, monopolizing the Premier League matches is uh, really, you know, they put like a third-tier match on free TV, and now I'm paying. So. Right. <laughs> I now subscribe to every known system uh, in the TV universe just so I can watch enough soccer. I know. I think I used to complain about cable being expensive, but now if I were to add up, I would be like one of those commercials that pop up on my Instagram with like how many uh, streaming services I have. I'm probably paying 200 bucks a month without knowing it. <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, for those of you that are joining us for the first time or those who have been longtime listeners all the way back to season one, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, we get together every couple of weeks, talk about issues in education and why we do. We enjoy a, a drink of whiskey because it's education on the rocks. George, what are you drinking today? I'm, I'm going with, uh, with the cheap uh, bullet bourbon on the rocks today. So it's a very, uh, it, it's nothing memorable, but it is kind of a, it's for me, it's a staple. So uh, that's what I've got. What do you have going? Simple, straightforward, get you through the weekend. I appreciate it. Exactly. Uh, and I appreciate it. Costco down here, you get the, it's that kind of whatever that, shape is of the bullet bottle but in the 1.75 liter nice. so it makes my hands feel really tiny when I <laughs> perfect well today i am uh, sipping on some whistle pig uh 12 years uh old world rye so it's a wine nice. cask finished uh uh whiskey and it is delicious and i was thinking as i was uh sipping on this rye that uh when i started drinking whiskey uh i was almost exclusively a canadian blended guy yeah. And I remember when you turned me on to some rye several years ago. And uh, so now sitting actually on my recording studio table, I've got three bottles of rye sitting on the, the table. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. So I've, 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 my, my palate has changed thanks to you. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that you need a little bite every once in a while. The Canadian is so smooth, but yeah, there is there's some nuance to a good rye. Yeah, so for those of you listening, if you like whiskey, uh, if you like education, if you're partially uh, enamored by either, uh, listen in, like us, share us. Uh, let's increase the listenership as we go into season four and see if we can get more people taking a pause and taking a sip. So right now, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a pause, take a sip, and we'll be right back with season four the Dude Are Your Tot Soggy edition of Education on the Rocks. On August 6, 1991, the first website was created on the World Wide Web. Now, in 2022, there are billions of websites online. And did you know that 55% of small businesses still don't even have a website? Well, at Mooney Marketing, they lift your business to the next level by designing your business an affordable, mobile-friendly website with professional business photography, video production, SEO, design concepts, and color schemes. As we venture into the next stage of the pandemic, customers and consumers are still searching online for products and companies, now more than ever. This Redmond-based marketing firm also offers logo design, advertising, branding, storytelling, and social media marketing services. For more information on Mooney Marketing, check out their website at mooney-marketing.com or give them a call at 541-280-7412. Welcome back to Education on the Rocks, the Dude Are Your Tot Soggy edition. While George and I remember tasting the paste as we muddled through uh, arts and crafts in kindergarten, most people's school's culinary memories are of sitting on benches in crowded cafeterias, trading PB&Js for chocolate pudding, partaking in real or imagined food fights, and of course, doing battle with the proverbial lunch lady. As the vast majority of American students are headed back to in-person school this fall, we want to open our fourth season talking beyond the classroom as we explore the importance of school lunch programs. Today, despite film depiction of trays of brown sludge and tiny milks, we're going to discuss how the school lunch programs in our schools are integral, not only to fueling our students' bodies, but also their minds. So George, uh, school food has become a big topic, but before we get there, beyond the fingerfuls of paste that you and I consumed, what are your earliest memories of the school cafeteria? Yeah, you know, a lot of times I must have been pretty full by the time I got to the cafeteria uh, from chowing down. And they also made me use the lefty scissors, too. Nice. Which, uh, yeah, which I still, I now cut with my right hand, so I don't know if they didn't work for me or it was like some sort of training device to turn turn me right-handed. Uh, I do everything else left-handed, but I do cut with the right. Yeah, but the cafeteria, uh, to me, I think I remember trading sandwiches almost every day with John Penagatakis, uh, where I'd get a salami sandwich and he had a peanut butter and jelly. And so that was what we ended up doing until finally, I think it was maybe, that was probably second or third grade. And then by sixth grade, uh, you know, our parents had talked and John's mom finally realized that, oh, he'd prefer a salami sandwich. And then I got peanut butter and jelly. Uh, but before that, it was like, we were just kind of, uh, we were just doing a barter system. What about you? Wow. Well, I have three distinct memories of the elementary school cafeteria and, and the school, pro, uh, school lunch process. The first is I will never escape the vision of cooked spinach being scooped out of a vat and dumped on a, a tray, right? The scoop, the, that hot spinach probably is why I have grown to disdain vegetables as an adult. <laughs> uh, it didn't turn you into Popeye. No, it was it was so terrible. I just 
I, mean, I don't even know if you're supposed to cook spinach the way it was delivered to us, but I, I remember that, and it was it seemingly nonstop spinach. The other thing I remember is how big of a deal it was to take the school lunch count. So I don't know if they did that in your school, but I, I went to a rural elementary school, and every morning was there was a school lunch count, and you could say hot, cold, milk only, right? And and the teacher oh, no had, really? yeah, I, we didn't have that. And the teacher would have to track it down and then turn it in and someone calculate it so they knew how many meals to make and how much milk to get. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, then, yeah, no, our, and, and we'll talk about this more is that I think that I went to kind of a suburban middle class elementary school. And so our, our lunches and what was offered to students was relatively non-existent. And so I think we'll get into like the what's and why's of that. But yeah, no, we had no count, nothing. Wow, that's fascinating because... Uh, the third part that I remember is that um, when you got into fifth and sixth grade at the elementary school, you got to help in the kitchen, and that was a that was a premium job because you got uh, you got seconds, right? So oh, yeah. on cornbread and chili day, you could just load up if you were uh, washing trays in the uh, in the in the lunchroom. Sweet. And Sweet. and I recall nearly everybody I went to school with ate hot lunch. Like hardly anybody brought their own lunch because. Uh, it was a rural area, you know, high poverty level. Uh, so there was lots of federal support for uh, for folks to, you know, have free and reduced lunch. Yeah. And, and that, you know, like I was just saying that my experience was totally different all the way up through high school is that I was in kind of suburban San Francisco communities um, that were relatively middle class, but I, but that wasn't indicative of our entire population, but there weren't the services available uh, for students. And so like that, from your perspective and, and cause you've been an Oregonian your entire life. And, and I know that you have like some pretty, um, pretty interesting and progressive views about school meals. Like what are your thoughts on that? And, and why do they matter for our students? Well, I think one of the struggles that I see in, in engaging with students and families is we have to find a way that schools are viewed as a community partner, that, that school is something that we engage in as a community. It's not something that happens to our students. And meals are a big, big part of that. I mean, there's, there's clear evidence that shows that students who, uh, who are well-fed, who have good nutrition, uh, do better in school than those that don't. And, and it's not, it shouldn't be earth-shattering people to know that if you're hungry, it's hard to concentrate on anything. And if that hunger exists over days and weeks and months and years, uh, it affects the way in which your brain develops and the way in which your body develops. And so we have a vehicle where we bring all of the children in the community to a place. Why don't we just feed everybody and get on with it, right? And so I think I think breakfast and lunches matter for for a couple reasons at schools. One is um, it's it's good for the kids, right? It provides uh, nutrition for our, our young people, make sure they're they're fed. The second thing is it creates a sense of community that says, hey, we're all in this thing together. So let's just go ahead and take care of each other. We can break bread together. We can share share a meal together, and we can build community. And I think that those are two things that are really important in today's day and age. Yeah, I agree. And and I think that kind of beyond the nutrition, that having this and the program that Governor Newsom down here has rolled out, that kind of a universal uh, breakfast and lunch program. So any student, regardless of financial need, 
who um, asked for a, a breakfast or a lunch at a public school from K through 12 is going to get it. I think that that is going to erase a lot of stigmas about, you know, who's going off campus for lunch and who, who has a, you know, a bag lunch and then who are the students who are waiting in line for lunch? Because right now, and maybe our audience doesn't know much about it, that in most communities in our country, that who gets a free lunch at school is determined by, um, you know, social economic status. And there's a paperwork trail that has to be filled out in order in order for students to get that lunch. Right. And so in, in the American high school system, uh, in general, there are typically four types of, of lunch students. There's those that leave campus for lunch. Uh, there are those who bring a sack lunch. Those who are, there are those who eat the school lunch, and then there are those who do not eat at all. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the four uh, types of students in the high school. It's less so at middle school and elementary school because kids aren't leaving campus. But the point is, is that um, because we have the, the, the system that currently exists, it creates social groups, it creates um, a default caste system, um, it risks further exacerbating the socioeconomic divides that currently exist in our schools and in our communities. And one of the greatest things that came out of the, the CARES Act work was that we were able to provide food to any student who needed food. Uh, in fact, uh, at some schools like ours, uh, we even went so far as to find ways to provide food to anybody in, the, in our school community who needed it. And we did that because there was federal money and state money that said, hey, feeding our kids right now is critically important. And unfortunately, that's something that has gone away as we enter the school year. And so that, that Governor Newsom in California was able to say, no, we're going to do this, I think is really powerful. Because what's happening right now at schools across my state and, and the schools that I run, too, is we're trying to encourage as many people as possible to complete the free and reduced meal application, which requires them to put in financial information uh, so that we can get enough students qualified to try and access a program called the, the Community Enhancement or community, yeah, community Enhancement Program, which means we can then feed everybody uh, lunch and breakfast if we have enough students who qualify. And that's 50, it's about 50%, right? Is well, that- is that how it works, or I'm not, I'm not positive of the number? Yeah, it's, it's really an interesting process. To qualify for the CEP program, 40% of your students have to be identified as uh, eligible for free and reduced lunch. But that doesn't mean everybody gets free and reduced lunch because it's, it's based on a repayment schedule to the government. It's a reimbursement schedule. And so to ultimately offer everyone uh, lunch, breakfast and lunch at no cost, you need to get to about 62.5%. But if you're between 40 and 62.5%, a local educational agency can fund the difference, right? Yeah, so gotcha. if, if you're at a district and you got 40%, you can qualify. And then in order to get everybody free and reduced lunch, you have to cover the difference between that 40% and 62.5%. And, a half percent. and there, there's a whole bunch of formulas and a whole bunch of calculations, so I've oversimplified it, of course. Yeah. But that's the general idea. But here's the hard part. The federal government already has all this information. Right? They, they already know uh, from tax filings and they know from uh, SNAP applications and they know from WIC applications. They already know how many people in a community meet uh, the, the, the standard for uh, free and reduced lunch. In my area, a family of four who makes under $82,000 a year qualifies for meal benefits. So if the, the family income or a family of four is under $82,000, they qualify for meal benefits. Well, 
guess what the the median family income in my community is? Uh, I, I think I know, but I want you to throw it out. Sixty five thousand. Yeah. So so the median is sixty five thousand. The mean is a little higher. It's about seventy two. But the average family in our community qualifies. Yet we have to go through another process, which people find invasive and intrusive, and in some cases embarrassing, to get to a spot where we can provide meal access when we only know the information. So it's it's one of these weird processes that we've established to try and make sure, right? There, there's a there's a there's this theory of the case that we want to make sure that somebody who doesn't qualify for benefits, that doesn't deserve the benefits, doesn't get them, so we'll willingly exclude people who do deserve them. And it, it drives me crazy. Right. It, it, I mean, it is, like you say, the data's out there. We know the challenges of getting, because we've talked about it in other, other instances where having students fill out any form and kind of the punitive, like, oh, you didn't get the syllabus signed by your parents, so you're losing 10 points on the second day of school or something like that, that it is, it's not as easy as, as people make it out to be. And like you said, like people answering financial questions is invasive and it can be embarrassing. And the idea that, you know, this is, we're talking about school lunch. And so even if some people were like getting over on the system, um, you know, it's not getting over on the system to the tune of, you know, the, some of the investigations that are taking place of people who took advantage of um, kind of pandemic funding for things that we see across the country. And, and that's to me is what I find um, just fascinating uh, and really troubling about about how we talk about meals at schools in this country is that to me we make so many assumptions that if a family is well off, then that, then that student is going to have access to cash or to go off campus, or that student has a stable household that they can make a lunch to bring in, that those are assumptions that I don't think are accurate. You know, it's, it's kind of assuming that if you have money, your family is totally fine. Um, and then also for students whose families are struggling financially, that to have any kind of hurdle between them and food, uh, it seems to undermine kind of the goals of public education in the country. Right. And what I think I ultimately struggle is if we live in a community or a state or a country that says students, children are our most important resource, children, children are the most valuable uh, part of our society, that we care for all of our children, we should not be debating about whether or not we should feed them at school. Right. I mean, that, that shouldn't be the debate. Yet year after year, we debate it. Year after year, families get straddled with you know, hundreds of dollars in student lunch debt. And, and somebody will say, well, they if they couldn't afford it, they shouldn't have, you shouldn't have gotten lunch. Well, stop it. Stop it. We're talking about kids here, right? I mean, every kid deserves to eat. And every kid deserves to eat breakfast and lunch at school. And, and systems that stand in the way of that uh, are not the kind of system that I want to be a part of. And so we continually try and find ways that we cover those expenses for students. Because I, I, the idea of some child in our community going hungry because of policy uh, is just maddening. Yeah. And that's, you know, as a teacher, I, I've worked in, w once I moved to Oregon, it was kind of the first time that I had really seen robust, um, school meal programs where a lot of students were, were getting them and they were widely available and it was really clear how you got it. Uh, on a number of campuses that I worked at in California is that there are students where I would, I would make an extra sandwich 
because I knew that they'd be in my room at lunch and I knew that they didn't have food. And so those are situations where, yeah, I guess I could have called it to called it to the attention of, of people on campus. But like I kind of just went out of my way and um, and kind of met that student's needs because I thought that that's what they needed as opposed to as opposed to kind of rocking the boat. But I think that this is something on which we should rock the boat because kind of speaking to your point that if we know that nutrition is important for students to be academically successful and we know that academic success is going to lead to higher standards of living for those students in the future, that kind of just even from a financial standpoint, that we should ensure we should ensure the meals in order to help ensure success so that those students can can lead um, kind of more, and I'm going to use the term, even though it's probably inaccurate, more successful lives as they go into adulthood. And right. I think that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, and I, I think, I think that's, that's spot on. And I, I think that when, when I think about teachers that are going back into their classrooms this week, next week, some are already back. I know that many of them are going to put into their supply budget requests, like money to buy boxes of granola bars and mm-hmm. string cheese and, and things so that, that students, when they come to their class and they're hungry, they can, they can offer them something so they can make it through the day. And I just wonder, why are we in a system where what we're trying to do is help students make it through the day rather than trying to help find a way that students can live their best life? And one of the questions we've asked one another as we prepare for this is free lunch political. And it absolutely is. And when, you know, as, as a former politician, I recognize, as everybody's heard, all politics are local at some point, right? Mm-hmm. And so what this, the school lunch issue that, that comes up is what do people deserve, right? And what do people earn? And it's this weird thing that happens where when we're talking about, let's say, billions of dollars in TARP funds from the mid you know, 2008 or whatever, when uh, the government bailed out the auto industry, right? Or when we think about a couple years ago when the government bailed out the, the uh, airline industry, there were so many billions of dollars. And, and yeah, some people might have squawked or thought or had better plans for it. That's fine. But it wasn't a local problem. And so people couldn't wrestle with it. But this is local. And so we have people who are like, well, if a kid can't pay, just give them a sandwich and then, you know, their parents will learn to pay the bill, right? Or, well, if that kid takes two milks, we have to charge him an extra lunch for having, you know, another six ounce carton of milk. Because people don't want somebody, and this is generally speaking, and I, I, but there are so many people that don't want other people to have something they don't have. And at the school lunch level, it's so small and so attainable, everybody can have an opinion on it versus TARP funds or, or some other bailout. D- does that make sense, what I'm saying there? Like, that people are so engaged with it because it's so local and it's so tangible? Yeah, and, and it's, it's like kind of as we started the show that we've all had the experience of either having school lunches or not having school lunches. So it kind of entitles you to kind of an expertise. Like, you know, everyone in, everyone in the country... Uh, has uh, can coach you soccer and has expert opinions on education system, <laughs> and so you know it is one of those it is one of those scenarios. And that when we do talk to, a, it, it almost functions um, inversely of how you would think it would. Where you think about like 
yeah, it's so local that you you actually know the faces who are being affected mm-hmm. by these policies that you would assume that like, oh, of course, you know, every student should have should have a meal. It should have two meals a day provided at school. But it does. It does. In some ways, it gets political in that kind of, hey, but I'm not getting it. Attitude, I think, is something that we are kind of wrestling with um, in local communities, but I think on a national level too, that uh, there's a lot more uh, yours or mine and, and the discussion of ours is not as kind of prominent. And, and I do think like, in, and I'm totally um, utopian in this, that I do think like students gathering in a cafeteria um, and everyone's there together and, and the vast majority of them are pulling a school lunch, that that does build a community of like, oh, this is what we do. And this is what we're doing for this hour. And there's value in that that might transcend just, you know, your K-12 education. Uh, I agree. And it, it creates neighbors. It creates problem solving. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things about the public school cafeteria that we could, you know, uh, we could revise to make it more, right. <laughs> more effective. But, you know, at the end of the day, f- feeding young people shouldn't be a political issue. But it, it's wrapped up into people's struggle with the difference between equality and equity and justice, right? Yes. That not everybody needs the school to provide lunch for them, but we should make sure that everybody that needs it gets it provided. And the process is so bureaucratic that you provide income information about the previous years or the previous few months. And maybe in those previous few months, your family had money, but we know that most, most families are a paycheck or two away from uh, having nothing. And so how can we know in July or August when a student registers that come December that their family might not experience a medical crisis or a fiscal crisis that despite whatever they had before uh, makes them eligible. But then in the midst of their crisis, we have to require them to provide evidence that they're in crisis rather than just say, hey, breakfast and lunch, it's for everybody, right? We have the opportunity to build a more compassionate community, state, country by simply ensuring that any student who attends a public school gets breakfast and lunch if they want it and if they need it without cost and without issue. And it's not that expensive over the course of the, the, the year and over the course of the country when you think about where we spend money in the country. And as a student, I had, I've benefited from the federal meal mm-hmm. program. I, I, I've eaten free and reduced lunch in my life. And there were times where I didn't know the difference and there were times where it was abundant to me there was a difference. And the thing that I know is that my friends who also may have been on uh, the, the meal plan, that none of them were able to change that without education, right? We know that education can be a great equalizer. And so one of the ways that we can battle generational poverty is by feeding our children so that they can advance in education and find ways out of that generational poverty. But when we build a scarcity mentality into the system with people who are only used to living on a scarcity mentality, we simply reaffirm that that's the way you're supposed to live, right? Yeah. So if, if you're told you only get six tater tots with your lunch and you really want eight, but you're told six is what it is and you try and scramble and find a way to, to get that eighth tater tot, you, we are unknowingly 
conditioning people to believe in scarcity rather than abundance. And in doing so, we that contributes to students living lives of poverty uh, for generations. Yeah, and so, I, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I just have one one question for you because you know a lot about this and you've been working with these systems for decades now. Is it as easy as what government uh, Governor Newsom did down here in California and just saying like, this is what we're doing? I, I believe that it is. Um, I believe that it takes a political will to say, all right, we recognize that there are significant portions of our state who are living uh, in poverty. It might be low-grade poverty. It might not be the kind of poverty you think about when you see it on TV or people living on the streets and things like that. But when your, when your family income level for qualification is higher than both the median and the mean, that means everybody needs this. Yes. Right. And so it's just a matter of reallocating resources to it. And one of the things that I did when I was at an elementary school that was a high poverty elementary school was worked with some community groups that we recognized a whole bunch of different groups were putting in bits and pieces of money and support for our families. But each of them required locations and offices and programs. And and so I said, why don't we just convert part of our school into this community service location where everybody who provides services to our family has a location and families have one stop. They come to our school, they get help from DHS, they get help from WIC, they get help from SNAP, they get help from, uh, from, from the police department if they need it. And we built, uh, you know, we had a shower facility and we had laundry facilities and uh, we got a grant to be able to provide dinner once a week for anybody that wanted to come have it. And the cost to the school was we gave up a classroom space for it. The cost to the community was actually reduced because it meant we had four or five different agencies that had rent-free locations to provide their services. For the families, it was a decreased cost because they only had to go one place. It's not impossible to do. It's just whether or not we can get out of our silos and really say, as a community, as a state, as a country, we want, we want what's best for our children. And it can be done. But it's about, as all things are, what are our priorities? Yeah. And I think that's a good way to end for today, right? Yeah. And hopefully people are thinking about this. Because I think sometimes, you know, we get back to school and everybody's like, well, back to school sales, back to school shopping, back to school. And there's a lot of excitement. One of the reasons I love education, I've told you this before, is that every August it starts anew. Yeah. And we should all be excited about it. And I hope that people think about what are ways you can help your school and your community ensure that all kids have breakfast and lunch. Uh, and some of it is, is applying political pressure to people to say, hey, let's all participate in the federal program that allows all students to uh, have meals. So give us your thoughts. You can find me on Twitter at Speaks. George, where can they find you? I'm at George underscore Hegarty. And you can find us on the internet at educationontherocks.com. We have a presence on uh, social media as well, so hit us up on there. But you know how you could really help us. If you like our show, if you like us, if you like whiskey, if you like education, or any and all of those things, when you listen to our podcast, share it with your friends, post a review. We're going to try really, uh, really diligently in season four to improve our metrics to the point where we can take this to be not just George and I talking a uh, couple, couple times a month about education, but maybe a national movement to get people to rethink how we view uh, our public education system. So we appreciate you listening. I want you to take a pause, take a sip. 
We will be right back with a sec segment we'd like to call After the Ice Melts. Welcome back to Education on the Rocks. This is now the time for a segment we like to call After the Ice Melts. George and I have sipped our whiskey, we've talked about an education issue for the day, and now it's time to think about what's next. So George, what are you going to do after the ice melts? So I've got a little uh, field trip planned for the day. I'm gonna walk downtown um, and our farmer's market is going on. And after living in uh, Central Oregon for 15 years, this is the time of year when the tomatoes come into the farmer's market, they're ripening kind of all over the Central Valley and they actually taste like something where I spent so many so many years eating tomatoes that looked amazing and then you kind of take a bite into them and they're nothing. Uh, so I'm going to head down and buy a bunch of tomatoes and I'm making a little berea for dinner tonight and so it should be should be a great uh, great evening. How about you? What do you got going? Wow, that's exciting. Well, uh, as per usual, you've got things that people are like, wow, that, George is a sophisticated, intelligent guy. I'm a gourmand. Yeah, yeah. and I've got <laughs> stuff where people are like, does that guy, is that guy really an educator? Uh, so it is fantasy football season. And so next week I have four fantasy football drafts uh, to, <laughs> pre to prepare for. And so... Uh, are you retired? What's that? Are you retired? Not yet. When I retire, I might have, you know, like seven or eight, but... Uh, so yeah, so my fantasy baseball league that I won last year and won the, the championship belt, yes. um, I am well ahead in that league and hoping to repeat. And so I don't have to ship the championship belt to one of my buddies in California. Uh, but so now it's time to focus on fantasy football. So I got to get ready for drafts. So this afternoon I'm going to do some mock drafts, uh, to get myself ready. Nice. And then I, I, I was meaning to ask you, and we can wrap with this cause this is definitely an after the ice melts. How about the uh, Game of Thrones prequel? You into that? I have not watched it yet. Uh, and uh, I was so disappointed by the way Game of Thrones ended that I didn't, I don't quite have the stomach built up to, to watch it. But have you seen it? Is it good? Should I? Should yeah, I so I, I was telling someone the other day that the last, I, I would even say two seasons of Game of Thrones, that I was watching it just to get the plot, you know, to see like, how are they going to wrap this thing. Um, and so I kind of reluctantly backed into uh, the prequel uh, last week and highly recommend. Awesome. Well, you yeah, know, if, if it's a sophisticated, it's a sophisticated show and uh, I think it, it's going to be, it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. Okay. I might, I might give it a run. Uh, if, if I knew for a fact that Rebecca Lowe, the mother of dragons was in it, I know. Um, I, I'd be all over it. And if you know, you know. So Yes, exactly. <laughs> Google it. That's right. Hey, everybody, thanks so much for joining us as we kick off Season 4. Again, if you like us, if you like whiskey, if you like education, if you like this podcast, share it, uh, promote it. Uh, let's increase the listenership. And, uh, hey, if you got a great bottle of whiskey, send it our way. We'll tell you what we think. George, as always, been an awesome time. Have a yeah, great thanks, show. Yeah, thanks, John. It was great today. Yeah, go enjoy uh, your time after the ice melts, and we'll do this again really soon. Thank you for listening to Education on the Rocks. You can connect with us on Twitter. George is at George underscore Hegarty, and I am at Jay Bullock Speaks. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, and please give us a rating on iTunes and leave a comment. Until then, look for us next week as we continue to discuss education on the rocks.